live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. And a pleasant afternoon to everybody. Uh, welcome to the Water Zone Show uh, this evening. It's going to be a great show. I want to welcome my esteemed colleagues, Mr. Chris Davies and Ms. Kingy Bistona. And today is our Ag Show Day, which we do once a month every Thursday or on Thursdays. And uh, we got a great show with some great guests, and uh, Ingy's going to be hosting that portion of it. So I want to bring uh, Ingy on. All right, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone Show. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is our Ag Show of the Month. And we usually turn it over to Ms. Ingy Bistoner, and she has two wonderful guests. So, Ingy, it's all yours. Thank you, Rob. I am. I'm really pleased and honored to uh, have two guests tonight from my own hometown here in Encinitas. We have the mayor of Encinitas and a city council person, and we're going to be talking a lot about uh, Encinitas' leadership in both urban ag and in uh, water conservation here right in town. So welcome to the show, uh, Mayor Catherine Blakespear. Are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Good to hear your voice. Um, uh, it's, it's wonderful that you were able to make time to come to the show tonight because I know it's election season and you are very, very busy, as, as we all are right now. Uh, so thanks for being on the line. And I'd also like to see if Tony Kranz may have out of the waiting room and on to the live show. Tony, are you there? I am here. Thank you for having me. Uh, wonderful, Tony. Uh, good to hear your voice, too. So uh, for our listening audience, let me introduce both Catherine and Tony, and then we'll dive into some questions about uh, you know, water as it relates to an urban environment, uh, which Antonia uh, most decidedly is, but it's uh, uh, got a lot of agriculture sprinkled in with it, too. So our wonderful mayor, Catherine Blakespear, has been serving um, our city since 2016. So she's been mayor for about four years. And she has family roots that go back almost a century, her great-grandparents having moved Encinitas in the 20s to grow flowers. So here's a mayor that has roots in agriculture, an urban mayor. Uh, she earned a bachelor's and master's degree in journalism from University Northwestern University in Chicago. She was also a reporter at the L.A. Times and the Associated Press before getting a law degree from the University of Utah. After marrying and having a couple of kids, she moved back to Encinitas to be closer to her multi-generational family, where you have a law firm um, as well as uh, being the mayor of uh, Encinitas. So as, as um, the mayor, um, Mayor Blakespear also serves on several outside boards, which will... Um, way heavily on our conversation here. Uh, it includes the vice chair of the Sandag Board of Directors, that's a San Diego regional board, and she's a board member of the San Diego Airport Authority and the Encino Wastewater Authority and the San Leo Joint Powers Authority uh, and the San Diego Water District. So Catherine is very well um, entrenched in water in the city, and we'll look forward to hearing more about all of those um, duties. And then Tony moved to Encinitas in 1960, spent his youth involved in sports and the graphic arts, attended local colleges and also Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and served as an air traffic controller in the 
Army National Guard in Alaska, in Anchorage. He and his wife, Cindy, have three children. Tony works still in graphic arts with photography and printing sales. And he was elected to the Encinitas City Council in 2012, so eight years ago, and has been working to promote policies that help to protect our natural resources, improve quality of life, and address social justice issues. So welcome to the show, um, Tony and Catherine. Uh, what I'd like to do is begin with Catherine, uh, just kind of a, a little bit of prep. Tell us a little bit about this life of paradise we call Encinitas and what your priorities have been as mayor. Yes, well, thank you. And I want to say a big thank you to you also for serving on our Environmental Commission, because that's a really important role uh, for our residents in Encinitas, and we're grateful to have you serving it at your city in that way. Oh, you're um, very so welcome. It's something I wanted to do after uh, post-retirement is get more involved in my city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so one of my focuses has been sustainability, uh, and water, of course, is a major part of that. So we, I think the city of Encinitas, all of the elected officials and the professional staff uh, care deeply about trying to do what we can to cool the planet. And so we are working on that on all fronts, reducing plastic and banning styrofoam and planting trees and making it easier to ride your bike and not drive alone in your single occupancy vehicle. Um, so all of those uh, sustainability and transportation um, uh, issues are things that I've focused on in my four years. Uh, and I'm proud that we have made great progress in, uh, in, in, in those areas. Um, and then there are also a number of, of water-related things and, and wastewater uh, that, that we are working on all the time. And I will... I'll talk about those too when you uh, yeah when we get to that part yeah yeah well as you as we mentioned in your intro you sit on two wastewater boards so tell us about your efforts to reuse wastewater whether it's for urban or ag use and what the current status of is of the old um, boy I remember in the late 90s the toilet to tap misnomer uh, kind of came about here in San Diego County. Are we any closer to stopping this practice of dumping precious treated wastewater into the ocean so that we can use it productively for either irrigation or tap water if it's filtered properly? And then yeah. maybe go into some of the obstacles. You know, one of them is the yuck factor. But, um, you know, our, the water we get today from the Colorado River is not pristine from the, from the Rockies. It's full of all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great question, and in the big picture, I think this is really one of the, the most urgent things, because water is precious, as we know, and it's very resource-intense to bring it from the Colorado or from the Sierra snowpack uh, or to process the salt out of it uh, at, in the Pacific Ocean and provide water that way. And then also to treat, we have a Lake Hodges Dam, and we treat water uh, locally here and then are able to use that as well. But all of that is very resource-intense, and if we could um, capture more of the water that we're already using, those droplets, it, it would be really beneficial for us. Um, and I think just as an example, you see the scale of, of what we're dealing with. So one of the wastewater districts board that I sit on is called the Encina Wastewater Authority. And what it does is it provides wastewater treatment and disposal to about 370,000 370, residents. And this is in, we're in uh, northern San Diego County. So it's not just Encinitas, but also Carlsbad and Vista and other water districts that serve, like the Vallecitos Water District, the Buena Sanitation District, 
the Lucadia Wastewater District. So with 370,000 um, residents, customers who are disposing of their waste water and it's being treated, what, what happens to that? Well, some of it is reutilized into purple pipe, which is water that goes into the medians, like the Caltrans right-of-way to water, um, uh, plants, also golf courses, uh, things that are, that are basically not uh, potable. Uh, and then the rest of it is treated to a very high level and then put back into the ocean. So the amount that's going into the ocean from the Encino Wastewater District is 22 million gallons a day. So that's 8 billion gallons a year. And it, when you think of the scale of water that we are treating, using, treating, and then putting into the ocean, um, you really see that we have so much uh, a resource there that we could be reutilizing. And yeah. I think what it, it really is a regulatory hurdle. And when I say that, it's not possible for a wastewater district right now to treat the water and then just put it right back into our pipes. And as, as you know, you have potable water that comes into your home, and that's the same water that's both drinkable out of the tap, but then also your shower water, your toilet water, it's all the same water. So we have a purple pipe system, and then and we have a potable system, and this water reuse idea would now then be a third system. So it seems as if the direction of where the regulations are going is to have a third system where it would end up being treated to a drinkable uh, level, but, but it's really not in place yet. And, and it is being worked on, and there are a number of different pilot projects, and um, it seems like it's in process. But, but speeding that up, making that a priority, making it so that wastewater districts weren't able to dump the water, had to find other uses for it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a similar system that you, that you deal with in all ways when you're trying to process food waste or you're trying to deal with plastics. You have to have the entire cycle, but you can't just have one piece of it done. Uh, and so I think that's where we are with water. But there's great opportunity, and I'm, I'm excited um, to work on it, but I also recognize that there, there are a lot of different players. There, the water world is highly complex, and it's difficult for, like, one water district to make or wastewater district to make progress there. That's, I just did some quick math. Eight billion gallons per year, I think you said. I mean, that's 25,000 acre feet of water, and they say that one acre feed or supply a family of four for about a year, you know, in urban terms. I know what it can do for a crop, but... That's an incredible mm -hmm. amount of water that's going out in the ocean. It's just crazy for us to be dumping out, out in the water, especially when we're in drought situations and when we're being asked to, you know, urbanites reduce their water use and so forth. So I really, I really hope that your, your efforts do come to fruition there. If you were to say, what, what would you say is the number one, number one thing that needs to happen to help this go forward more quickly? Is it money, or is it public opinion, or is it just the bureaucracy? Well, I think public opinion uh, does, of course, always help, and political pressure without question helps, uh, because there are there's a, a great fear of contamination, which, of course, you know, it goes to public health, right? So we we're always need to protect the public health at the highest level. But, some, yeah. but being able to find a way to yes is, is really important. So the toilet to tap um, reluctance, I mean, is a really unfortunate phrase. And I think yeah. it really set things back because there was yeah. this public um, almost outrage about the idea. And it, it put a chill on, on forward progress um, many years ago. 
Uh, but yeah. if we're, you know, we're, we're coming out of that now, but it still is something that, that we struggle with. So I think public pressure, political pressure, uh, to make it so that the regulatory agencies move more quickly to establish these guidelines so that it could be rolled out, uh, I, I think is something that would be really important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think people don't realize that a lot of the water that is imported into cities currently, like I said, is not pristine from some Sierra River. It already has sewage that, and, you know, runoff and all sorts of bad stuff. That's why we have to filter it so perfectly to make it drinkable. But we can right. do that whether it comes well, from a dirty river or if it comes from a sewage pipe. Right. And what, I mean, an example, the purple pipe, the treatment that happens at wastewater facilities, per, I've heard a number of people uh, who work in these different agencies say that the purple pipe water could, could be drunk. I mean, it is, it is treated to such a level that it, 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 it is very, the likelihood yep. of getting sick from it or there being a public health problem is really, really low. But, but, right. it, but for example, purple pipe would go right into the pipe and then it would go out into the median or wherever. And there was, like for our local wastewater district in Cardiff, the San Alijo Wastewater District Board that I also sit on, you couldn't come with a big, huge bucket and get it and then maybe put it on your yard. But as we're, but because there was some public pressure for that, and including me as a board member asking the wastewater district to provide this, because at some places they do, but out of an abundance of caution, they weren't doing it because oh, it might come in contact with somebody, and who knows, and you know that kind of thing. So, but it's being changed, you know. So now there's some construction going on in the facility, and there will be the ability to come with a big drum and get recycled water and then use it in somebody's home environment. And I think that's a really good improvement. The other thing is that now urban agriculture uh, uses, uh, we don't have truthfully that many of them that are, that are left, uh, the, the big growers, but, but they are allowed to use it too. And, and we try to facilitate that because, of course, it's more ecologic. So it is, it is, it is loosening and we are making progress when it's something that's, that's asked, asked about and asked for. Yeah. Yeah, well, I can imagine a homeowner being able to come and put them in a bucket for, for a farm or even a large nursery. It would need to be piped in, and, um, you know, that requires infrastructure, so I see that that's a challenge. But, you know, we, we lost a lot of agriculture in San Diego County during previous droughts in the in the 90s, and a lot of the avocado groves were um, either diminished or converted to something else because of, of drought. So this water is really valuable and it could be used to help keep our, our you know, billion dollar plus ag economy in San Diego County going. Um, yeah, and it's, it, I mean, it's also interesting when you think, I, I tried to do some rainwater harvesting for a while where, where I collected it in a huge drum and, and then had a pump system and was putting it on a, a series of trees, of fruit trees that I had and with using gravity and this and that. And what you realize is that water is actually really cheap. I mean, people always complain about water prices when they go up. Uh, and oh. people complain about prices, of course, when they go up in anything, uh, wh whether it's your trash being picked up or, or tax or your food, or of course, because a lot of people are living on a fixed income. And I completely understand that. But when you realize how many gallons of water you get for the price, it is yeah. amazingly cheap. And the fact that it's drinkable is also amazing when you think about it. You can go to a hose and drink the water, and it's just it's this abundant resource that we have. Um, and, and I think in some ways that has resulted in a feeling of it not being as precious, it, or it's, 
you know, because there's so much of it and it's so cheap relative to doing something like trying to capture it. When I, when I captured it and then put it on my trees, and I essentially saw no difference in my water bill, even though there was a whole line I wasn't using anymore. And it was an, yeah. an, an incredible effort on my part. And I was using a lot of electricity to do this. You know, you realize you're doing it because it's a recreation or it's something you believe in, not because right. it's actually saving you any money. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a money issue in many cases for urbanites. Uh, it's really more of an availability issue. Um, you know, if it's not there, then it's really valuable. Uh, you're a backpacker, so you know that the number one thing you think about when you're out in the woods is, where is my next water source? Because I cannot live without water. But here, right. you know, at home, we have a tap, and it's um, incredibly cheap. But if you're out in the stores and you buy a bottle of water at a 7-Eleven or whatever, um, it's incredibly expensive. It's more expensive than gasoline, you know, per gallon, if you look yeah. at it that way. So, it, you know, the value is uh, dependent on where you are and in what form it is. Um, so... Catherine, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Encinitas' urban ag ordinance. I know that you've worked on that, too. What is it and what inspired it in the first place? Uh, yes, I'll just yeah briefly go into that before you go to my colleague, uh, council member, Tony Kranz, because we worked on this together, actually, when oh, I was first okay. elected, um, oh, which was great because what we were trying to do um, was to make it easier for people to do uh, little things, like sell produce from their backyard, at the end of their driveway, you know, you'll say like lemons for 20 cents or something at the end of people's uh, yards and to set up farmers markets and to have community gardens. We had one, we have one that uh, took a really long time to go through the process and had a lot of hurdles. We wanted to make that easier. Um, and also to allow people to trans, if they wanted to do agriculture, urban agriculture, some type of farming, growing of food, that it was a, a use, a land use. That there was a that we had established a policy priority for, and I think uh, what you see is that there's a great pressure, um, financial pressure for people to develop their land into homes, uh, and so there was one specific um, uh, incident or um, landowner, and she had a little farm called Coral Tree Farm, and I got involved with her and trying to help her as as an attorney and as somebody who wanted to be able to maintain this part of our community. Uh, to, to let her keep doing the farming she was doing. And she had farm boxes and she would have seed saving classes and that kind of thing. And so, you know, but if you, if you regulate it so much and make it so expensive and there's so many hurdles that people have, they're basically driven into selling their land for development, then you don't end up with any of the great heritage that we have in Encinitas. Uh, right. And so Tony and I worked together with the city staff and the community and planning commission and went back and forth a lot and ended up with an ordinance that really focused on the growing and less on the animals, like um, uh, chickens and pigs and goats. Less, uh, we didn't really end up dealing with that, but we did deal with bees, which Tony has a particular interest in and expertise with. Uh, and so, yeah, it is something that I, I feel proud that we were able to do, and I think it, it has helped people. There are several people uh, who are doing things now and using the urban ag permit that we created that's streamlined and cheaper, and, and it's a clearly stated uh, part of our, uh, of our city. So this is something we value and something we want to allow here. Well, as, uh, as a gal from farm country up in Tulare, transplanted to, to San Diego County back in the early 80s, I'm always happy to see more farming here locally. <laughs> you can't take the country out of the girl, but not the girl out of the country, I guess. So <laughs> uh, I'll transfer over to our, you know, um, uh, pass the baton to Tony. Tony, uh, tell us a little bit more about the urban ag ordinance that you 
worked with Catherine on, and maybe how its focus upon crops rather than uh, animal agriculture transpired. Well, it was an interesting process, and uh, we did, um, you know, my interest was was driven by uh, a passion for keeping bees and the fact that the city of Encinitas, it was illegal to keep bees on on anything but the largest of, of properties. And so oh. um, with, with cities around the country adopting ordinances that allowed beekeeping in um, more residential neighborhoods, uh, I thought it was uh, worth pursuing uh, a change to the city's ordinances to allow that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of fear about bees, so it was, it met some resistance. There's no question about that. Um, my own experience uh, growing up in Encinitas, I was uh, somewhat involved in the floriculture industry, and I uh, grew up across the street from some greenhouses. I, my backyard was an avocado grove uh, by Val Noonan, that was owned by Val Noonan, uh, who served on the water board, um, and it was um, quite the idyllic youth and you know i went away to college spent some time in anchorage alaska and when i came back home there was so much uh agriculture that was lost because uh, a lot of the uh floriculture industry had been offshore south of the border and the value of the land was just incredibly high so many of the folks who were at one time um operating greenhouses uh really um you know could couldn't uh couldn't resist the, you know, development potential that their many acres of greenhouses would allow them. Um, I also, because of that floriculture history, I knew that, you know, I had a good friend. He was my college roommate and guy that I went to high school with who uh, still had some greenhouses. And uh, I got to thinking about his situation and how we might be able to make it easier for him to continue to um, operate an agriculture uh you know, a farm, and um, he got, ended up in a situation where the old greenhouses that we used to kick around in uh, were blown over by a windstorm, and so he uh, decided that he was going to take a look at um, how to uh, create a, an urban farm, and so with the new urban ag ordinance and the simplicity of getting an ag permit for the conversion of this greenhouse, um, he took advantage of that and uh, now has uh, Ashburner Acres in Encinitas and uh, is uh, really enjoying that. His, his children and grandchildren are are able to do the farming there, and it's uh, it's a uh, excellent opportunity for them to learn a little bit more about the history of Encinitas and its uh, roots in agriculture. So um, that well, was that was what drove drove the urban ag ordinance. And and what was interesting is that there were a lot of folks who really had an objection to allowing for more chickens or you know we were we were kind of right sizing the ordinance with the uh with with allowing for um 20 chickens instead of 10 and you know these sort of things and um it was it was enough to inspire a robocall that was sent out to oppose it and what they did <laughs> is they used uh farm animal noises and say do you want this in your next door neighbor's <laughs> yard and it was it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, so what we you know, none of neither Catherine nor I were all that interested in that aspect of this. We wanted to kind of simplify the bureaucracy, and most important to me was the ability to keep bees. So we you know dialed it back on the farm animals, and and I think we created a system that uh, 
um, will last and will uh, allow people who are so inclined to, to continue to use their property to uh, grow food and, and uh, be able to, you know, commune with their neighbors in a way that uh, uh, otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. Yeah. Well, thank you for both of your work on that, because, I mean, it, it does make our community so much more pleasant and valuable to have some agriculture still here, um, notwithstanding the lack of animal agriculture. And I, I, I think that was smart to probably forego that. Um, but the crop agriculture, I mean, it, it is, it's got to be incredibly tempting for these folks to just sell out to development because the land is so valuable. So anything to make it easier for them to continue growing crops, I think it's really been a great thing. So thank you for doing that. Yep. So what about water here in the region? I, I know, Tony, that you've been really engaged on that. And we, we discussed a, a recent report that the University of San Diego published um, that compared um, well, first of all, that our, our water supply is a lot more diversified than it was 30 years ago, and that's good. Um, but then there's this whole topic of how much water in gallons per person per day um, our, our goal is achieving. And then, you know, there were some things out of Sacramento that were dictating that as well. How, how are we doing in Encinitas? Are, are, we, um, doing, are we doing pretty well on a per capita basis? Well, I think we're, uh, yes, we are doing fairly well. Um, I think one of the things that we're up against, you've touched on a little bit with Catherine, and, and that is, you know, just the, the built environment that we have and, and some of the challenges that we have in trying to adapt that. And, you know, so when you, when you um, only have a single uh, pipe running to a single meter and then that, that water is used for essentially dual purposes, both potable uses as well as non-potable uses, it, it really kind of complicates things. And, you know, if I were to be able to start over with our built environment, I would make sure that we had two, two, uh, two pipes coming to each parcel so that the pipe that had potable water was separated from, from the non-potable. And, um, you know, we, uh, for example, I know at the Badger filtration plant, which is where all Encinitas' water is processed for for uh, uh, cleanliness, flavor, et cetera, um, there's an intensive uh, uh, treatment process that it goes through at Badger. And of that water, 97% is not used for potable purposes. So, um, you know, it's, it's an incredible amount of water that gets processed. And, and of all of it that does, so very little of it ends up uh, in, in uh, being consumed. So, you know, this is what the challenge is, is how do we... How do we, um, you know, convey to people that the right thing to do is to shorten your showers when the meter that's keeping track of all that is also tied to the sprinklers on their lawn? So, you know, and you got Sacramento, which in fact doesn't even have water meters in a significant part of its city. So it's it's all these, um, you know, legacy infrastructure issues that I think are going to be very difficult to reckon with in the years ahead. Um, but it's something that we need to do more to advance um, solutions along those lines. Um, there was, uh, you know, some discussion about um, reusing water, and we, the San Diego Irrigation District, as well as the Santa Fe Irrigation District, own a an abandoned water pipeline that essentially runs from the San Leo treatment facility out to 
uh, Rancho Santa Fe where the Badger filtration plant is. So the ability to turn water around and put it back through Badger, uh, you know, we've got the infrastructure in place, but we don't have the bureaucracy. We don't have the laws that allow us to do that. And it has hmm. become quite frustrating because we've been talking about that for the eight years that I've been serving. But things just move so slow. And shifting paradigms and trying to get people to look at things a little differently is very challenging. And to get back to your point about water use, it's just one of those things that I think, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a generational change. And as the cost of water continues to rise, I think you will find more people that will modify their behavior in a way that uh, benefits um you know, everybody. Yeah, we, we always see, um, you know, some better better statistics uh, when we're in a drought and when the public's being encouraged to conserve water. And then when it starts to rain again, everybody thinks that the drought's all over. Yeah, And, yep. yeah, it, it, it's really a mindset that people have to realize that we're in a permanent drought. It's never okay to waste water. Um, you know, there's a... Oh, I've, I've, I've recited this before, and I don't know if I can recite it again, but, we, you know, we have the childhood um, um, little song, you know, rain, rain, go away, come back another day, whereas yep. in Israel, which yep. is always in a state of drought, water shortage, um, they have kind of an opposite nursery rhyme that says, oh, thank you, God, for water. I, I want every drop to stay here, something like that. <laughs> you know, and it's just, you know, like you said, a generational thing where people have to grow up thinking about things being um, finite and valuable and need to be conserved and um, yep. if, if we're going to have a sustainable future. That's it. And I, you know, when we remodeled our house, we looked at doing gray water, but the, you know, permitting for that wasn't available at the time. And um, we did, you know, adapt some uh, downspout pipelines that would take rainwater off our roof and off our driveway and we uh, live on a parcel of land that at one time was was part of about five acres of avocado and other fruit trees so um, we still have one avocado tree left from those days and uh, we ran our trench uh, that you know I dug a hundred foot long trench that was three feet deep and filled it with gravel and all of our downspouts feed into that and that that avocado tree has been the happiest tree ever since we did that. So it's been very, very good. We're not in the same challenging situation as Catherine, where she had to use electricity to pump it. We were able to use gravity. So we're, we're lucky in that way. Ah, okay. Well, go ahead, Catherine. Well, I was just going to add that I, you know, you're, you're the, um, little nursery rhyme you shared about Israel, I think that that's so, so interesting because there's a real irony in when you think of the reality that one of the things the city deals with a lot is the difficulties with flooding. But then on the other side, we live in an arid climate where there's not enough water. And so, you know, these, these, these two polar opposites, too much water, too little water, and how you connect those two in a way that allows us to keep the water that we get and then reutilize it but not be overwhelmed with it because the system can get overwhelmed with the big storms like we've had recently. Uh, and so, you know, that's the difficulty and that's the art and that's the struggle. Uh, and I think yeah. we're working on that all the time. But, but some, in many ways, it certainly isn't going fast enough, as, as Tony said. Yeah, yeah, and it's both, um, I think, 
surface water retention here locally, and then if we have a groundwater aquifer, you know, that's ideal, as opposed to building some big, huge dam in Northern California up in the Sierras and, you know, pumping it all the way down to Southern California. You know, they say that all, all future water solutions are local solutions. We have to work better on our own watersheds and how to reuse our own wastewater to begin with. You know, we, we get water and then we throw it away and we need to start using it again. So, um, yes, it, I know that Lucadia in Coney's district has some flooding and I'm not quite sure what we do with that flood water, but it'd be wonderful if it went to some sort of retention basin that we could then reuse. Um, rather than going out in the Pacific Ocean or down people's streets and into their homes. Yeah, that's, and, and yeah. I'll, that's money, you know, it's a lot of effort. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll also just um, say to all the listeners out there that wastewater districts are elected positions, and having people on the boards that care about reusing water and environmentalism and climate change and doing what we can will make a huge difference because a lot of times wastewater district boards don't have any turnover. So they'll have the same people on them for 40 years or, and, and they're sometimes um, very much already involved in the industry in some way. So, so, but there are elected positions for a reason because it's a policy direction that, that these yeah. boards need to go and they need to push the staff and, and the community and educate the community on, on what we could do and how to get, get there. And so I really want to encourage people to run, you know, it's, it's usually a low-budget affair because there's not a lot of competition. Uh, and so, but run, put your name out, put your name in the hat and say, I'd like to be on one of these wastewater boards. Because all of us are served, almost all of us who live in any type of an urban or suburban area are served by wastewater districts. And um, it, it's just really important that we have good people. Yeah, I think it's really invisible to the, uh, you know, average citizen. We have, you know, most people don't even know where their food comes from, let alone water or their electricity or where their wastewater goes. So it's a matter of education. It is really important for, again, for a sustainable future and addressing climate change and uh, all of those issues, which are new, uh, newer than the old days. So, yeah, thank you for that uh, that little recruitment uh, blip. I hope our listening audience is um, taking note and um, they throw their name in the hat. So with a couple of minutes left, that's a good segue. I'd like to ask you to both, uh, you're both up for re-election this year, and this has been a year like no other. Um, please, each of you, a minute. Um, tell our listening audience why you deserve to be reelected. Um, Tony first, and then we'll let Catherine close. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I I, uh, I think that it's pretty important in this particular environment, especially to have people that um, have experience in the job. And I have been serving for two terms now, coming up on eight years, and have, um, you know, I think, done quite a bit to um, improve our city in, in many ways. Catherine has ticked off a few, and, and uh, uh, I look forward to continuing the progress that we're making. There are a number of projects that we've advanced to the point of construction, and I look forward to seeing those projects through to completion. Um, many of them are, are mobility-related, so that people will have uh, an alternative to driving their car um, we can make it safer for people to walk and bike, and they can enjoy our community in a way that I think it begs to be enjoyed. We've got the ocean uh, to the west of us, and we've got the beautiful San Leo Lagoon and the Batacitos Lagoon on the south and north sides, respectively. 
And so you, enjoying those water bodies are, are I think, um, some of the most uh, enjoyable things for our residents to do. So um, I would appreciate the opportunity to continue to serve and, and making the progress that we've been making. And I look forward to doing that with Catherine as well as Jody, or excuse me, Thank Kelly. Thank you, Tony. I wish you luck in that. Catherine, just, uh, yeah, I, I think we have about 30 seconds left before the music starts and they go to the NBC News Hour. Um, okay. Why, 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 well, why, yeah. why you deserve the vote? <laughs> well, thank you so much for having uh, us on tonight. Uh, a really interesting show. And I am running for re-election to, to preserve and enhance our city. So preserve is what is it that's great about us and enhance is let's make it even better. So our coastal environment high quality of life, programming, we have a highly engaged population that I'm very connected to, and I think that we have great things in front of us, and so I'm uh, running to continue the progress that we've made. So thank you, Ingrid, for hosting this and for inviting us. You're very welcome. Thank you both for your service.